You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me back to the nation of Texas with all of its wonderful humidity. It's great to be here. You had me last summer, and I think your church is the nicest church in the Southern Baptist Convention. You guys are so kind. Thanks for the warm reception. I wish my family could be here with me today. They couldn't travel with me. I'm going to give a shout out to them. This is my fam. Uh, that's my wife, Lindley, and our four teenagers who are back in Nashville. Miss you guys. I hope this sermon is bussing. That's what my kids would say if it's good. It's bussing. Well, if you brought a Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. And before we get in there, it would be wrong of me as the CEO of Lifeway to not give you a quick update about all the cool things happening in our organizations. So as you turn your Bible, let me just hit this quick and then we'll get into the text. Lifeway won a big award last uh, year. Newsweek named us one of the top online shops, which was huge for us. Now moving the, the business online. Yeah, thanks for all six of you. are excited about that. Thank you. Um, there was a saying at Lifeway when I got there three years ago, we are Lifeway, we make great stuff, we dare you to try to buy it. And so we've tried to make the online experience a whole lot more uh, fun and easy. So if you haven't checked out Lifeway.com recently, give it another try. We've really made some huge strides. Number two, 90 million people in India speak a language called Telugu. We created the first ever study Bible for 90 million people. What you see on the left is a pastor, scholar who helped create the notes at the bottom of the Bible. The first time he held it in his hotel room, he cried. 2,000 pastors lined up on the day we, we opened up the selling of it. It's the fastest growing study Bible in India. And now we're moving to the five other languages across the, na the nation of India. Isn't that amazing what's happening there? 90 million. Number three. We used to have zero Hispanic authors who were like in contextualized places creating resources for their people. We used to basically take American English stuff and translate it into Spanish. But now over the last few years, we have 53 Hispanic authors in their lands creating resources for their people that are made for that land, for those churches, for those people. And we are seeing that number grow. So Lifeway is on the move internationally, which is very exciting to us. Um, number four, yes, thank you. Camps. Last summer, we had 88,000 students in one of our huge centric kid or student life camps across the country. This summer, we have 100,000 kids in camp. Last summer, we saw 1,400 kids give their lives to Christ, and they raised $445,000 for Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, whose missions offerings. That's leftover concessions money that people are sending with their kids. This summer, we have 100,000 kids, so we pray that more would give their lives to Christ and more, more money would be given to, to fund missionaries around the world. And then last two things, VBS is going strong. Churches are back to VBS. This summer it's Spark Studios. Next summer it's Twists and Turns. I gave my life to Christ at a kid's event. I think the last statistic I saw was that 90% of people who give their lives to Christ do so before the age of 14. So vacation Bible school is where it's at. Studies show if a church wants to double its baptisms, have a vacation Bible school. So I'm glad that churches are gathering again, doing camps again, doing VBS again, that kids are hearing the gospel again. It's just really going great again with Lifeway and VBS. And then finally, I just want to tell you about this podcast my wife and I started called The Glass House. I want to encourage you to listen to an episode or two. It will help you understand Greg and Kelly and what they go through in ministry. This podcast is with pastors and wives who share like the unique struggles of living in a glass house where everybody gets to see into your life 
when you're dealing with all the same struggles and all the same challenges of being a human being, but it's all in public view. So we've had various pastors and wives come on, just talk about some of the struggles, and we're finding that lay people love listening to it because A, you realize that everybody's human and goes through the same stuff, and B, gives you a greater sense of, uh, you'll have a stronger desire to pray for those who are on your staff and some of the challenges they face. So wherever you find podcasts, check out The Glass House. All right, let's jump into the text. A few years ago, uh, our family vacationed to California, the land of the great redwood forest, and author John Steinbeck said this, the redwoods once seen leave a mark or create a vision that stays with you always. And if you've ever seen a redwood or a mighty sequoia tree, you'll never forget that image and that vision. And I I started doing some research on these trees because I'm fascinated with trees, which is kind of a quirky, weird thing about me, I realize. But this is what I learned about redwood trees. Redwood trees are very shallow, often only five or six feet deep, their roots. But they make up for it in width, sometimes extending up to 100 feet from the trunk. They thrive in thick groves where the roots can intertwine and even fuse together. This gives them tremendous strength against the forces of nature. So get this, what keeps these massive trees strong is not their depth, but their strong relationships with others, with the other surrounding trees. By joining underground arms with with their neighbors, they gain this enormous stability. Conversely, a redwood that stands all by itself, no matter how tall and mighty it might seem, it is actually quite fragile. Now think about that, that metaphor in light of what's happening with Christianity in the church today. How many of the younger generation are saying, I'm all in with Jesus, I'm not in with the church. And I'm here to to warn us all, there is no strong Christian apart from the church. It is the strength that we gain from one another. It's the interdependence. It's the spiritual gifts lived out, expressed, received, and given that really makes Christians strong. And so if I could summarize this sermon in four words, it's very simple. We need each other. And you need other people holding you up and making you strong. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 10 today, the writer is attempting to convince the early church to not stop getting together, to not stop being in community. They had their own issues. Uh, They were arguing about the second coming and when it might happen. They were experiencing persecution, which was causing some of them to fear a gathering. Uh, Others were just, just plain lazy and didn't want to come to a public gathering. There were introverts back then, believe it or not. So the church was beginning to drift apart and reverting back to this old covenant legalism. And in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, this is a really practical and powerful text because the author basically says, let us now, because Jesus is the great high priest, because all these great things have happened, let let us now do these three things if we want to be strong Christians. And so if you're familiar with this passage, you may know that many commentators see this as an outworking of Paul's three ingredients of the Christian faith, which is faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. All three show up in this text, and there are three let us statements that correspond to them. So let me read the text, and then we can break it down together. Chapter 10, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. 
since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good deeds, good works. Not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's take those three let us statements. You know, in the military, they can just say, do this. They command you to do things. In the ministry, we got to dress it up a little. Let us do these three things. So here's what strong Christians do. Number one, he says, let us draw near to Christ in prayer. Strong Christians draw near to Christ in prayer. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of our faith. As you know, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, some of you, if you're new to the Bible, there's, there's, a, there's a temple in the Old Testament. There's only one person, the great high priest, that's allowed to go into the inner sanctum of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. He's got to pass through a curtain. Only with fear and trepidation can he come that close to the very presence of God. And when Jesus dies on the cross, mysteriously, at the, at the temple, this giant curtain is separated, torn, and falls to the ground. So now the symbolism is so rich. Now any of us can enter into the Holy of Holies, be right in the very presence of God through Christ in any moment of any day that we want. The gravity of that and what happened in that moment, I think is sometimes missed on us. One of the special people that God brought into my life this last year is a guy named Bill Elliff, a pastor and revivalist from Little Rock, Arkansas. And he speaks a lot on prayer. He's at a meeting, he was talking about prayer and he was saying some things that really messed with me. Don't you hate when speakers mess with you? He said this, if someone gave you money to buy a house, to build a house, you would develop your plans with an architect, but you might discover that the money they provided was not enough money. So back to the architect, you would go, you would downsize one room or another, maybe even deciding that some rooms would be nice, but not necessary. But there's one part of the construction you could not eliminate. That's the foundation. Even though unseen, everything depends on the foundation. And from there, Elif makes this connection to the local church and to modern Christianity. That is, we have taken prayer and moved it to the side room of the blueprint. What used to be the very foundation of the church, the very foundation of the Christian life has now been moved to the side room of the Christian life, to the side room of Christian ministry. And what, is, what has happened has been a weakening of the church and the weakening of its power. So if Hebrews had been written today, I'm confident the author might say something like this, too much tweeting, not enough praying. How does that sit with you? You feel convicted by your prayerlessness? I think we should all be asking ourselves the hard question about what is happening to my spiritual life as prayer is on the decline, but screen time is on the incline. Who is affecting me? I am an early riser. I like to get up a couple of hours before all other breathing human beings. It's such a peaceful time. Any other people like that in the room? Yes, these are the elect, the chosen ones. <laughs> so I've been working my way through experiencing God this year. Uh, experiencing God is the study produced by LifeWay. It's produced, I can't even tell you how many stories of God's calling upon people's life through experiencing God. We just put a new cover on it. This is a little commercial I'm throwing in here. You should get experiencing God. But I've been walking through it and then every morning taking a, a pretty lengthy prayer walk through my neighborhood. And, and that, that practice of just praying on a regular basis before anything else happens has become such a lifeline for me. I wish I had started doing that sooner in my life. One of the books that Lindley and I read early in our marriage was Elizabeth Elliot's book, Shaping of a Christian Family. 
And her description of her dad cast a vision for me that I've never forgotten. Here's how she describes her dad. Wouldn't it be amazing if one day your kids described you like this, dads? She said, my father's life as we witnessed it was more eloquent than anything he ever said. Like Jesus, he rose a great while before the day. He went downstairs in his robe to kneel in prayer and study the Bible before breakfast. The difference it made to us to know that we had been thus prayed for every morning before we were awake was unperceived then. She didn't get it as a kid. And then only God can assess the long-term effects of those prayers throughout the rest of our lives. The image of her dad in his robe over his Bible praying for the family was like the image of a redwood tree. It was so solid and strong and secure. It's something she would never forget. And there's something I've come to realize about the Christian life. There's so much beyond my control. There's so much beyond your control. I can't control people. I can't control outcomes, but there is something that I control. I can be a prayer warrior. You can be a prayer warrior. No, prayer warrior. Nobody's stopping you but you. So when the author of Hebrews, with all of this heady doctrinal cognitive content in the first 10 chapters, when he comes down to where rubber meets the road, he starts with this. And let us consider how we can draw near to God through prayer. Strong Christians draw near to God in prayer. Are you? Are you drawing near to God in prayer? Is it the foundation of your life and ministry? Number two, that let us hold on to hope. This hope we have in Christ, verse 23 says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope and do not let us waver. This idea of holding on to something solid. Have you ever held on to something for longer than you wanted to? I'm not talking about a grudge. I'm talking about tug of war. You ever played that game? It's the worst game ever invented because I'm always on the losing side. Let me tell you how it ends. You get drug across the hard ground like you're behind a vehicle with a chain with blisters on your hands. And they tell you, this isn't a fun game. We hold on to this hope. That same image of holding on is exactly what the New Testament says. There are going to be seasons in your life and in your journey with Jesus where all you can do every single day is just hold on. You're not producing something. You're not creating something. You're not in, in, in an offensive stance. You're just holding on. And a realistic picture of the Christian life is that there are going to be seasons when you have to draw strength from other people and all you can do is hold on to the hope that things are going to get better. And if you know the book of Hebrews, sometimes it's foolish to hold on to the wrong stuff. They were holding onto the rituals, the Old Testament customs, the legalism. They weren't holding onto the hope they had in Christ. And the author is saying, let's hold on to the right things. Hope. Lifeway Research has a, a major project that we've just published this year on the well-being of pastors. Over the last two years, we've studied uh, over a thousand pastors from across the country and asked them the questions. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? What's going on in your life? Where are you struggling? They, inter they interviewed them on all these different categories. One of the stats that came out of that that's most staggering to me is this. Two out of three pastors that responded to the survey, 66% of the pastors confessed this. I'm struggling to believe that the future is bright. That's called losing hope. Now consider the context of what we've just been through. Most pastors would say it's been the hardest season of their ministry, that on any given Sunday, whatever they said about masks or vaccinations, 50% of the people were mad. To be a pastor over the last few years has been to be quite unpopular. 
And there are many pastors who burn out, many pastors who resigned, many pastors who said, I'm getting out of the ministry to do something else. And a lot of people lost hope. They couldn't hold on. But there are many who held on. And your pastor's one of them. I was recently at a meeting where Greg was speaking and sharing with a group of pastors about how to stay encouraged in discouraging times. And Greg said two things that stuck with me. I wrote them down. So now I'm quoting your pastor. Just tell him that I think he's smart, all right? He said two things that, I, that, I've, that I've held on to and thought a lot. Number one, he said, today's newspapers line tomorrow's bird cages. I don't know where that came from. If that's not in the Bible, it should be. <laughs> but the news cycle is so short. And at Lifeway, we're constantly dealing with some hurricane that's blowing in. And it comes and it goes. And, and you know, uh, I had, a, I had a, a seasoned leader tell me one time that in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention, everything is, is groundbreaking and earth-shattering but the earth still hasn't shattered. And there's these things that come into our lives that we think this is earth shattering and the earth still hasn't shattered. Jesus said, this too shall pass. You'll get through this. It will pass. The second thing he said was, the clouds are always moving. I've never heard this before. And Greg explained that, someone had shared this with him, that if, if it's a dark time in your life, and many of us in this room are walking through a dark time, and you look up, all you see is clouds, and you feel like it's always going to be cloudy in your life. But if you just hold on, if you just endure, eventually the clouds begin to break up and the sunshine will come with time. It's this thing in the Bible called patience, which we should have left it with the way it was because the actual word is long-suffering. So if God is developing patience, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, he has to make us suffer longer than we would prefer but the clouds are always moving. Things will get better. And so the writer of Hebrews says, hold on to Christ and it will get brighter out there. Don't give up. So let us draw near to Christ in prayer. Let us hold on to the hope. And then my favorite one, number three, let us provoke one another in love. And this is the height of the passage. The language used by the writer of Hebrews is fascinating. The text says, let us consider one another in order to provoke one another to love and good deeds. That Greek word for provoke is used in another place in the New Testament to describe annoying people, annoying behaviors. It's used to explain how one person negatively rubs off on another person. But here's the word, it, it, here in this word, it's used in the opposite way. You can be a positive irritant in people's lives. You should be searching, considering how you can positively irritate everybody around you. It's called the Ministry of Encouragement, and so few people seem to be called to it today. Former Lifeway President Jimmy Draper told me this uh, last year. He said, be kind to everybody because everybody's having a hard time. It's kindness, the New Testament says, that leads people to repentance. I heard comedian Ken Davis one time telling about a, a man he encountered. He said, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and it's been a fantastic experience. And Ken said, why don't you tell your face? <laughs> Listen, people, I preach all over the country, and many of you are smiling. You get my jokes. I like you people. But I am always amazed when I'm at church, and it appears that some people haven't told their face that they're Christians yet. Like, there really is a positive joy of the Lord that should be our strength. Which brings us back to the image of the redwood tree. If you have joy in your heart, you have no idea how much the people around you need to borrow some. 
You don't know the story of the person sitting right behind you, what they've been through, what they're suffering. And if you just happen to be in one of those sweet places where you're on the roller coaster of the high point and God has been good to you, it's a season of prosperity, just be aware all around you, there are those who are enduring the test of adversity. And one day, guess what's going to happen? It's going to switch. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength, but even more than that, share it with others. The late Zig Ziglar used to say, many Christians need a checkup from the neck up. <laughs> I tell my kids that all the time. It doesn't really work, but it feels good coming out. And don't you think that it's kind of a weird and wild thing that we have the greatest news in the world to share And yet we walk out of a room and people leave feeling negatively impacted by us. Let us consider how we can provoke one another towards love and good deeds. I remember my first church, I was having a hard time. I was a young pastor. I was inexperienced. We were trying to make a decision about property. And newsflash, they don't teach it in seminary. There is no class called property. So the church was trying to decide what to do with this controversial piece of property. And I was in this deacon's meeting and there was lots of disagreement and I was faking it till I was making it, that kind of thing. And afterwards, one of the deacons came up and said something to me that I've never forgotten. It's become a little bit of a leadership mantra for me. He said, pastor, I want to give you a piece of wisdom someone gave to me, pass it on to somebody else. He said, I just want to remind you that people want to work with you and not for you. It's the way that we treat people around us, the way that we communicate respect or disrespect that makes us or breaks us. Don't ever forget that your words, your tone, and your body language leave people in either a better condition than you found them or a worse. It's all about how you treat people. So knowing these things about Jesus, let us cling to prayer, cling to hope, and look for ways to provoke one another towards love and good deeds. But it's so hard to do in a virtual world where we have all these virtual places where people keep dehumanizing one another, refusing to enter into real rooms where courage and conflict resolution can take place, but instead using keyboard courage to demonize one another. In public view, often Christians putting snarky comments and hateful comments online for a a lot world to watch us play the the game of of carnal nature. And I don't know if you follow Jackie Hill Perry, one of our leading authors, but she recently made an announcement of why she's canceling Twitter and you'll see her on Instagram. And I found what she said about that decision to be very fascinating. And I'm going to read three paragraphs from Jackie Hill Perry to you. This is good stuff. She says, why cancel Twitter and not Instagram? I've actually thought a lot about the differences between the two. The very construction of Twitter leaves more room for toxicity. For one, it centers words. As Proverbs says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. It's just a lot of words on Twitter. The retweet button takes something that's either small and blows it out of proportion or something harmful or ridiculous and spreads it to the masses. Instagram doesn't have the same virality to it. The more I've thought about it, I also think the absence of pictures might be the reason that dehumanization is so easy to do. And this is my favorite part. There's a different leap you have to take, Jackie says, in your conscience to see a face, a smile, a family, a daughter, and still decide to sin against them verbally. 
On Twitter, you see words before you see people. So it's far easier to talk as if an image bearer isn't on the other side of the screen. I could not have said that any better than her. Do you know what uh, biblical conflict, conflict resolution looks like? It's very simple. Jesus makes it really clear. You got a problem with somebody, they got a problem with you, you go to their face, you sit down, you talk it out. If that doesn't work, you can't resolve it. What, is, what does Matthew say? Go and find another objective person that could come in, serve as perhaps a mediator so that you could understand one, one another. And when it's over, perhaps you've won over a brother and sister because the greatest relationships in my life are not the, the, the relationships in which there has been an absence of conflict. The most treasured relationships I have had is when we have had a lot of conflict, but we have worked through it. And we are better today together because we had it. But Hebrews tells us that we should be provoking one another towards love and good deeds, but instead, what are we doing? We're provoking one another to be discouraged and angry and bitter and resentful. So what do we do with this? Hebrews chapter 10, two takeaways I would just give you and I'll close with this. I think this passage convicts us in two ways. Number one, it convicts us to start speaking the truth in love. Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth, right? He combined both of them. Both are necessary in the world. God loves grace. God loves truth. We're supposed to bring them both. But we're not supposed to bring the truth without grace, without love. So it's entirely possible for you to be right and not righteous. It's entirely possible for you to say the right thing in the wrong way and sin against a brother or sister. It's the way you say it. It's the tone in which you say it. It's the body language in which you say it. All these things together commute either support, love, and respect, or disrespect. So we can't stop having conflict. We need to have the conflict, but we need to do it in a way that we speak the truth in love. So Ephesians chapter 4, 29 says this, no foul language should come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Now watch verse 30, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 30 says, and do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. Don't you find it interesting that there's a connection between being sad, the Holy Spirit's sadness, and the Christian's graceless speech? That when we are graceless in our speech, we make the Holy Spirit sad. We grieve the Holy Spirit. So there's a way to say the hard thing in a soft way. I was recently in a meeting with several people who love me, who want me to succeed. Uh, we were talking about an idea for LifeWay. It was my idea. I thought it was the best idea I've ever heard, which was true of the last three ideas I had had. One of the persons in the meeting was my wife, Lindley. Scripture says, Proverbs 27, that the wounds of a friend can be trusted. And she wasn't trying to wound me. She just knows me. And she said this. She said, Ben, no offense but I think you will be bored with this idea by Friday. And sure enough, I was. I had three more ideas after that that were better than that one. But I remember feeling confronted and protected. We have a very human marriage. It doesn't always play out that way. But that was a win. You should not stop confronting you should not stop speaking the truth, but there's a way to speak the truth in the most loving way.
And we've lost the art of that. And the Holy Spirit is sad about it. Number two, the lastly, we should look for ways to provoke one another to good deeds. How do people feel when they leave you? The aftertaste of a meal is real. Last night, Adam Mason, your own Adam Mason, took me to the taste of Texas, and I walked away thinking, I like Texas. <laughs> the aftertaste was so good. The aftertaste of a meeting is also real. When you, when you encounter people, you're entering into the world where God is at work. And when you, are into, when you enter into a room, do you enter into a room with thanksgiving and with praise? Because the psalmist says that's how we enter into the presence of God. We come into his gates with what? Thanksgiving and with praise. The way to get closer to God, the way to get into the very inner sanctum of God is through worship. By praising him, by speaking positive words of life to him, by, by giving back to God the good words of praise. And that's the same way, by the way, we build relationships. When we walk into a room and we come in with thanksgiving and with praise. Lord, help us to positively irritate other people that they might see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. God, forgive us for our prayerlessness, for our seasons where we have gone long stretches of time without speaking to you, where we have harbored bitterness and anger toward you, where we have blamed you for the negative things that have happened in our lives, where we went dark on you, stopped talking to you. And as a Christian, Lord, we all walk through seasons like that, where your silence is deafening, and so your silence is perceived and then becomes our silence. And I pray for that person in this room that used to have a healthy prayer life, that used to have the foundation of prayer in their life, but they've walked away from that. Or I pray for that person in this room who thought Christianity is all about doing, but not about being. And they've lost the joy of just being in the presence of God. Lord, because Jesus died, we can enter right in with all of our challenges and all of our problems. Give us the desire to do that. Give us hope. Those who suffer from depression in this room, who feel like the sky is dark and it's never gonna break up, Lord, remind them that it will, that this is not the end of the story, that there is another chapter coming in which you will use the pain of this chapter to produce beauty in the next. Let us hold on to the hope that you're not through with us yet, that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, that you're never done doing your good work in our lives and that even these seasons of winter make spring even more sweet. So for those suffering from depression, those who suffer from loss of hope, God, remind them today that if you'll just hold on, it'll get better. And for those of us who have lost the love for other Christians and for other people, who know how to bring a room down, who see all the things that are wrong in the world, wrong in the church, wrong in people. Oh God, would you just remove the scales from our eyes that we would start to see the best in people, the best in the church, the best in the world. Because you, God, are bringing beauty from ashes. 
And if there's anyone here that's never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, anyone who's never reached out their arms in faith and just said, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I cannot do this alone. I cannot walk in solitude. Lord, I pray that they would call out to you now and say, Lord Jesus, I invite you in. Today, I become a son, a daughter, a disciple. Today, I receive the free grace that was given at Calvary. Today, I receive the Holy Spirit into my heart. Today, I receive the new and living hope that will take me into eternity. Today, I am a new creature in Christ. Give me the strength now to reach out to others and to draw the strength I need from them. God, we thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And on this weekend, we celebrate it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.